0: Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, the podcast dedicated to the lighter side of crime fiction. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host. On each episode, I interview an author writing cozy, traditional, or historical mysteries. You won't find mysteries with explicit sex or violence. You will find mysteries with high-quality writing, intriguing plots, and engaging characters. Thanks for listening welcome listeners to another episode of the cozy corner with alexia gordon i'm alexia gordon author and host of the podcast author greg heron who's writing as tg heron joins me in the corner today to chat about his new mystery a streetcar named murder welcome greg
1: hey alexia thanks for having
0: me on now, a streetcar named murder is your first cozy mystery. So please introduce us to your sleuth, Valerie, and tell us what she's up to.
1: Well, Valerie is in her late thirties. She married very young. She got married when she was nineteen, and she had kids very young. She had twin sons. Her husband died five years ago. He was a fireman, and he was killed in the he was killed on the job. And so, f- after his death, she pretty much focused on raising her kids. And now her kids have left, have left her and moved, moved on to go to college up, the, up the road in Baton Rouge. So she's kind of finding, kind of finding herself at loose ends, not knowing what to do with herself, wondering if she should go back to school, if she should find a job. Whether, and then boom, everything changes in one afternoon. <laughs>
0: Of course, a mystery titled A Streetcar Named Murder is set in New Orleans. So what makes New Orleans an ideal city in which to set a cozy?
1: Well, I think the at first I wasn't sure you could write a cozy about New Orleans, to be honest with you. I know it had been done and that people had done it, but I really didn't see how you could because New Orleans is so... Not cozy, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, but the great thing about New Orleans, what I realized when I was when I started writing the book, was that cozies are about communities, and New Orleans is a community, and broken up into many, 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 many smaller components of communities. And so, being able to write about a small community within the bigger, the broader picture of the city could get that same feeling to the reader of what what they like about the sense of community, the friendships, the relationships between the, the regular characters who appear and who will be, who hopefully will be appearing in every book going forward to get that sense. And one of the things that I always liked, was well, one of the things I really have always loved about New Orleans, one of the reasons why I moved here was because there was such a strong sense of community in New Orleans. New Orleans people, New Orleanians are very, 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 it's...
0: it's well, uh, well speak, speaking of streetcars, um, other tips for dealing with streetcars besides don't turn left and get hit by one. And in your book, you said, uh, uh, don't uh, don't drive on St. Charles. Uh, <laughs> tell us about well, the streetcars. Are, are they just for tourists or do people really ride them? Or?
1: Well, the streetcars were, New Orleans was a streetcar city. That was our public transportation for years and years and years and years. And then during the oil boom of the 50s and 60s, The oil companies wanted New Orleans to have buses because they weren't making money off of streetcars because they were electric. So New Orleans tore up all of its streetcar lines. And so that for a long time, the only one that was left was St. Charles, the one on St. Charles Avenue. And it was primarily public transportation for years. It still is. People still use the streetcar to get around. I would much rather ride a streetcar than a bus. <laughs> if I have the choice is to go to Magazine Street and catch the bus or to walk over to St. Charles and catch the streetcar, I'll get the streetcar every time because it's, it's at least more fun. You know, there's a little bit of glamour, a little more glamorous to just sit there on the streetcar with the window down as you roll clacking past all the trees and everything and all the beautiful houses. Not quite the same experience in a bus, <laughs> but. It's becoming more and more for the tourists now, unfortunately. Um, I don't know, but New Orleans is also becoming more of a less of a working class city than it used to be. That was how, you know, it's usually the working class who takes public transportation. When we're pricing our working class out of New Orleans now, and New Orleans, how, that's something I talk about in the book, is how property values in New Orleans have just gone and have been absolutely insane we were not new orleans was one of the only places in the country that was not affected by the market the real estate market the housing crunch like in 2008 Late, i think it was
0: think, yeah
1: 2008 because we'd had hurricane katrina so there was already limited housing here oh, okay <laughs> so, so we didn't have people had already lost their homes yeah so. So it didn't really impact New Orleans very much because if your house was still standing in New Orleans, you'd, you'd won. (laughs) And, And your property value had already shot through the roof because you had one of the only existing houses left in New Orleans. And so, but the property values have kept going up and they've gone up ridiculously and I came up with the. The thing that starts off in the book, where she finds out that her house is actually much worth a lot more than she thinks it's worth.
0: And you, you did in your book, I and mean, you touched on um, how much things have changed. I think your your character had lived in a, 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 you know, moved into a neighborhood that was dangerous then and is, you know, super shishy now. But some things about Norleans don't change that much. Uh, for example, uh, carnival. You also talk about the the crews um, and uh, how hard it is to get into some of them, and how far back they date with this sort of unbroken mm-hmm. tradition. So for for those of us who you know only know the little bits, we maybe saw in an Anne Rice movie about the crews mm-hmm. and carnival. What's tell us a little bit about what carnival season is about, and and what the crews are, and why they're they're so important to this long tradition in New Orleans.
1: Well, the crews put on the parades, and the parades are what carnival, what really make carnival has turned carnival into what it actually is. For generations, carnival, what it is now, is not what it was even when we first moved here. It was, it was starting to draw. It's always had a tourist base. There's always been a strong tourism base for Mardi for carnival but it was always primarily local it was a new orleans thing it was for the people in new orleans it was a big celebration for everybody in new orleans and and of course being the hospitable people that new orleans are we threw we threw a party for the city and invite the entire world you're more than welcome to come and many of them go back many 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 years and unfortunately Going When you have something Southern <laughs> that goes back that far, there's a lot of baggage that comes with it. So really, for people who aren't familiar with New Orleans and how it works, the best way to think of a carnival crew is like the Lions Club. Or the elks club <laughs> it's it's something like that only all of them have a social miss, mission in that they're working for a charity they're raising money for a charity they're doing something for charity and they put on the parades you know and that's what everyone really is into with carnival is the parades and the, uh <laughs> they have a masked ball i should put it suddenly say they have balls but that's probably not <laughs> not might have a double entendre there that was unintentional I don't want to say that the carnival crews have balls but because we have women's crews as well but the, and so it was all kind of linked together with, this, with the business community the society and so on and so forth so that the balls themselves and the parades themselves also were kind of like New Orleans version of the debutante stuff so like I was a maid of Rex, I was a princess of Rex I was this I was in this per I was in this crew I was you know, so they're all and they all have titles and king every parade has a king and a queen and a court and all of that stuff and it's it's a lot it can be a lot, and then they started um, because the parades because of the social element, the society element, the business element to the crews, they were kind of exclusionary. They were like fraternities. You had to be invited to join. Comus is the crew. That is the hardest one to get into. That is the oldest one. That is the one that, in theory, runs New Orleans because all the important people belong to Comus. You cannot belong to Comus unless you're in Rex, but you can be in Rex and not belong to Comus. Comus chooses its membership out of Rex. So Comus is, Rex is the big, the big, the one that everyone knows, but Comus is more, is more secret and more, nobody even knows who, who the king of Comus is. He's never, his the king and queen of Comus. We never know who they are because wow. they always remain masked. And the night of, after the parades on Fat Tuesday, the last big elaborate thing is the, the courts of Rex and Comus at the Civic Auditorium meet, and 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 Rex does this whole song and dance obeisance to Comus because Comus, the king of Comus, is the most important person in New Orleans, and but we never know who those people are, and why, and it's televised. It's actually televised with announcers. Giving you a running commentary is—it's it's a thing. <laughs> because it's forty days, forty days before Easter, it's Fat Tuesday. It's hard to—it's and it's difficult to keep track. And you, when you live here, and I live inside the parade route, you have to literally during parade season, you have to plan your entire life around the parade schedule, because once oh. they close the streets, you can't get out, oh, or you wow. can't. Leave. So. <clears throat> they usually start closing St. Charles Avenue. I live a half block inside St. Charles and the river St. Charles. So the parades pass right by our corner. So they close the street at like five o'clock. So I have to be home mm. from work well before five o'clock because everyone's starting to show up for the parade as well all the parking is gone. Yeah. <laughs> So no, it, it becomes and okay. When am I gonna get? When do? When can I go to the grocery store? When can I make it to the grocery store? When can I pick up the mail? When can I run the errands? When can I? Because the streets are closed, you can't go anywhere. And once you can't avoid it. Once you live, if you live inside the parade route, you cannot escape it. It's it's just a fact of life. It's just something you have to deal with, and it's fun. I mean, it's it really is fun. It, I, every year, Paul and I think to ourselves, Oh, we're not gonna get. Uh, I'm not going to go to the corner. I'm not going to deal with the people. I'm not going to deal with the cost. Every year we end up going. (laughs) We go to as many parades as we possibly can every year until we're so exhausted we just can't do it anymore. And I used to work, my office is moved. And so I used to, it used to be easier for me to deal with Carnival because I would just, I worked in the Marinade on Frenchman Street, which is right outside the French Quarter. So I live in the lower garden district. So it was, Three miles on foot to my office. So I could actually walk during carnival season and leave my car at home, just park the car and walk, take the streetcar to Canal Street and then walk through the quarter and I was at my office. And then at night, I would just walk home up the parade route and follow the parade up St. Charles. It would be passing the other direction as I'm walking up the sidewalk, catching things as I walk home. So I would usually come home covered in beads. <laughs> which was always, which is always fun. I mean, we have so many beads, and you you get so obsessed with them. It's, it's so funny because you just get, you just want to catch them so bad. You just want them so bad. It, it's hard to explain. It sounds so completely insane to people who've never done it before, but you really, really, really get caught up in it. And you want, I'm grabbing them out, grabbing them out of the air, every such direction, you know, it's like, and I have no hand eye coordination and I'm practically blind, but man, I can catch a bee I can catch beads All of this business. And I can catch, I'll see them coming right for somebody's head and I'll just reach out and grab them right before they hit somebody right in the face who's not in the tension. Like my hand is like right there in the face. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. They hurt <laughs> when you get, when you get hit in the face with beads, they hurt, <laughs> especially if it's cold out. When it's cold out of the heart, they sting your hands to catch. But it's 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 fun. The parades are a lot of fun, and everyone's in a really good mood. Everyone's just happy, just happy to be outside, having a good time. Everyone's in a good mood. Paul and I laugh about it because it's just like sometimes because it's like it's just this, in our neighborhood, like you hear about all this stuff about show us your boobs and all that stuff. That doesn't happen in our neighborhood. In our neighborhood, it's all families and tour. you know. Locals. That's all up near the quarter. <laughs> <laughs> like Canal Street and, then, and Martin Street. That happens uptown. That doesn't happen in our neighborhood. Our neighborhood is like kids playing catch and running around. I, I don't know. It's just, it's just fun. And the whole city just embraces it. There's no fighting it. There's really no point in fighting it. You can resist it, but you're just going to make yourself crazy. So just give in because you, you don't have a choice. Just give in to it. And you know, and it gets, it can get really crazy sometimes because if it rains, you know, a parade has to make the decision of whether it's going to try to reschedule or if it's just going to run in the rain. And parades that run in the rain, people will still stay out there. I stayed out there in the rain. It's, it's, you catch more. There's less people, (laughs) and they're trying to get rid of everything, right? So they don't have to haul it all home. You can catch more in the rain. But there was one year that Endymion, Endymion is a major, is the biggest one. Endymion lasts for like five hours. Oh, wow. It's insane. It is literally insane. It is huge. It doesn't, it's the only New Orleans parade that does not come down St. Charles Avenue because it's too big. Oh, wow. it's big to come down St. Charles Avenue. So it goes down Canal Street and ends up in the Superdome. And then they have their their ball after their parade This on Saturday night. Well, Endymion, like I said, it can last five hours. <laughs> the first floats don't get to the Superdome until like 11 o'clock. I mean, that's how long, and it's still going. The parade is still going, that's how long it is. And it's been rained out on Saturday before. And so they've, rolled, they've had it come after Bacchus on Saturday, Sunday, and Bacchus is a huge parade. So, Endymion follows Bacchus. Well, Bacchus usually lasts until 11 o'clock, so Endymion doesn't get here until midnight. It's still going by my corner at five o'clock in the morning. We can still hear the bands and things going by at five o'clock in the morning. Oh my God, Sunday morning. The, the new, Sunday afternoon parades are gonna be here soon. <laughs> less than eight hours, the morning parades are going to be here, oh my god. And then Fat Tuesday is just... It's, it, it's hard to explain if you've never experienced Fat Tuesday. It literally can't be explained. Fat Tuesday is Halloween, Mardi Gras, you name it. The entire city is in costume. Everyone wears a costume on Fat Tuesday. Costumes they've spent months putting together I mean it is unreal (laughs) my neighbor my neighbor is one of those people he's one of those people who like works on his halloween and his new mardi gras costumes all all year round and he comes up with these huge elaborate things and he'll you know he'll be spray painting it on the porch as i'm getting home like well what is that going to be and then he'll he'll show me a picture of what he's going to be and all i look at it it's like how are you near the bathroom in that. How are you going to go to, how how do you get into a bar? What do you, how, your costume's not functional. It's not a functional costume. Functionality is always very important to me when it comes to a costume. And, but they do, they come up with these enormous like headdresses and things. Like one year there was my favorite costumes that I've ever seen with three people went as chandeliers. They were they were chandeliers from Beauty and the Beast. So they were like done up like Lumiere, enormous, and they had like the the little whatever those things are that hang from chandeliers that <laughs> like, these little diamond-like things. Yeah. All of them. I have heard, one year. I went. We went down for Fat Tuesday, and I must have taken five hundred pictures with wow. my camera. Um, because every time you turn around, just, there's just another amazing costume or something that's so hilariously funny that you can't, how did I never, I would have never thought of that, but that's hilarious. How did you, like, I, one of my favorites from the very first year I went out, I lived here for Fat Tuesday with somebody when tippy head run from the birds, all the birds on wires around them and and looked just like her had the outfit and then had the blood spots from them hitting her in the face it was hysterically funny i never thought i've never come up with that in a million years or you find some like a drag queen who gets a bunch of muscle boys to carry her around as cleopatra on a on a litter and they're all oiled up and dressed it, it it's it's it is amazing the extremes people go to for costumes in New Orleans. It it made me realize, it I it's another thing that I'm not very good at is costuming. So I I used to joke that I don't wear costumes anymore because I was so terrible at costumes. Everything that I always wore could be described starting with the word slutty. So sort of slutty <laughs> something. Slutty sailors, slutty firemen, sl- slutty cops, slutty this, slutty that. Because it basically was, I didn't wear a lot. <laughs> because it was just easier to just come up with something very simple and scanty. And I could get a, back when I could get away with wearing something scanty in public, I did. Probably far longer than I got away with it. Probably. <laughs> got away with it probably. But it's a lot of fun. Uh It's... It was fun writing. It's hard to write about New Orleans and not write about Carnival and not write about Mardi Gras because it's very much a part of the city. And when we are talking about communities and neighborhoods earlier, one of the standard things in New Orleans used to always be where would you go to high school? That was something that people would always ask you in new orleans because once you told them where you went to high school that told them everything they needed to know about who you were because that's what neighborhood you were from that's where you went to high school that's the people that live in this neighborhood that's what they all do the same kind of things they all and so that was an easy identifier where did you go to high school in new orleans and you still hear that periodically i'll hear it at a party or something i'll hear somebody say oh so where did you go to high school i'm like Oh yeah, people do still say that. People do ask that question, and it and it, it's important, and it's an important question.
0: That's 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 a theme in your book too. Was it uh, L L High? I think that the the twins went too.
1: I invented that. There's there's no there's no Loyola High School in New Orleans. There's Loyola <laughs> an University, and there's a Loyola Street, but there's no Loyola High School. Okay. But when I was writing this book, I was using. The high school that i was using is a real high school and i say, i say some things about the people at the, the parents at this high school <laughs> that i probably shouldn't put them so i should probably make that a fictional high school <laughs> and so i did and and it really made me, un- and it really made me uncomfortable. It's like, people are going to read this. There's no Loyola High in New Orleans. There's no, how, how could you say that there's a no Loyola High in New Orleans? There's no Loyola High School in New Orleans. And then I realized that, well, I can't use a real crew either <laughs> because I can't have someone get murdered at somebody's <laughs> ball. And i all right, well, I'm going to have to make up a crew and we do have women's crews here and i specifically this the crew that i'm specifically was thinking of when i was writing this book and when i invented this crew if this turns into a series could get very very interesting <laughs> could get very 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 interesting because this was a crew that had a lot of scandal attached to it a few years ago. But,
0: well, you you decided to give readers something that's not your typical. in you know, *Streetcar Named Murder*, as we mentioned, is your first cozy. So, what what kind of made you decide to to go down that that route?
1: When I first started writing crime fiction, I was writing a *Private Eye* series, but I still read everything. You know, I, I read everything, and one of the things that one of the things that I had noticed as I became more and more involved in the crime fiction community is how down people are on cozies, and I never, which I never really quite understood, and I still don't. I still don't understand why people are so down on cozies. It's like, so what? He <laughs> you know, has a cat. Who cares? Oh, there's recipes in the back. But is it a good story? Is it well written? Is the, are the characters likable? That's what I care about. I don't care about, you know, it's like, and, and what a stupid way to pick on something, a series of books for. Oh, well, V.I. Warshawski has a dog, <laughs> right? Um, so I, I, it really kind of took me aback. and I've, And I've noticed the longer, you know, as I've been in this industry, that it's very systemic. It's very, very, very systemic. And I don't know why it is. I once conjectured on a panel once that they're not taken seriously because they're books usually about women, by women, for women. So therefore it's lesser, (laughs) like romance. Nobody takes romance writers seriously and romance novels seriously either because they're just that easy to do i guess i don't know (laughs) get back to me when you've written one right but so i had always wanted to do it i'd always wanted to write a cozy I've, i've always liked them i've always liked them i've always thought it was a i'd never understood the disrespect they get and over the over the last few years i've been reading more of them and i've been really enjoying them and there are some really really extraordinary writers in the cozy field and so i thought well you know put your money where your mouth is right see if see if you can write one and i'll be honest it was hard it was very hard i it's the hardest one of the harder harder books i've written it was a, it was really hard trying not necessarily because of trying to fit into the the confines of what defines a cozy, but more along the sense of the tone. It's a tone I've never, it's a voice and a tone and that I'd never really used before because there's, because there's something there's, a, there really is something about the voice that the cozy writers, cozy writers use that, welcomes the reader makes the reader feel like they're at home this is where I, i'm comfortable here this is where this is what makes me happy this this makes me happy and that's really hard <laughs> really hard to do and what, and it was something that i had never really thought about writing in books before, I say, like, oh, this is the voice, this is the tone, this is how it's gonna go, this is the character, this is how it's gonna, go. and whether the, whether the audience likes this character or not, I don't care. This time it mattered. <laughs> they have to like her, and if they don't like her, they're not gonna read her, and they're, you know, it, the book fails if you don't like the character, and that's not something I'm used to doing, having to worry about, I mean, my Scotty series: everyone who reads the Scotty books loves the character a lot, and I've been told that I'm really good at writing characters that the that audience can relate to, but it was never something I actually tried to do. It just happened that way. This time, I actually had to think about it, and that made it and I made it harder on myself because I was so worried about that. I was trying too hard and that made it, and therefore that made it harder. And so after the first draft, as I was going into this next draft and I took that mentality out of it. And it's like, just do what you normally do. Write this woman that you, that is somebody that you would actually like to know that you would like if you met her. And that's pretty much whenever I try to write a likable character, that's, kind of what I do. I was like, okay, well, this is somebody that I would... I want to write somebody that I would like. And hopefully, if I like her, the readers will like her as well. And so that... So I I think I I overthought it a lot. I also had a very short turnaround on it. Contract was signed on whatever the Friday was before Hurricane Ida. I signed the contract that Friday and lost power on Sunday. (laughs) And... I had only written the first 50 pages for the proposal, and they wanted the book by January so it could come out for this December. So I had a very short window to write the book, and so I think I was putting a lot of pressure on myself and making it a lot harder on myself than than it needed to be. Hopefully that lesson is learned, but it's also easy if it becomes a series, should they want another and should the series continue, it'll be a little bit easier because I know who she is already and I already know who her friends are and I already know what their relationships are like. I don't have to establish any of that. So hopefully I won't be overthinking it the next time, but I kind of, kind of hope that I kind of, well, I do hope that it does go on because I really do like the character and I, I work off of titles, so that I, I use the title and then I build the story out of the title, kind of, even though will, I will say, spoiler, there's no streetcar scene in this book whatsoever. It's strictly a title thing. But the next one in the series, the one, if I end up doing a series and I do another one and they let me use the title that I want to use, is directly tied into the story. And I think it's actually kind of funny but I don't know if anybody else will get it if we'll think it is as funny as I do because I find myself enormously humorous. <laughs> I find myself much funnier than anyone else has, finds me. I can assure you of that. But I want to call it The House of the Seven Grables. Betty Grable posters. But it, had, but it plays into the story. It's, it has something to do with the story. So why, why are there seven Betty Grable posters in this house? And that's actually part the mystery, but they may not want to use it. So I don't know. It depends on if they how if how I don't know how that's gonna work. If they're just gonna to come to me and say we want you to do another book in the series or if they're gonna make me write a proposal for it, you know, if they're gonna have any well let's discuss what this next book is going to be. I don't know how that's gonna work. I don't know. Um but I have a really good story that the seven Betty Gravels play a part in. <laughs> and the,
0: the title kind of goes with the theme. You know, your, your, your titles would be all puns on classic literature works.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what thematic. I was. The original title for A Streetcar Named Murder, which they didn't want, which so I had to come up with A Streetcar Named Murder instead, was Rave Expectations, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of played in with the theme of The Unexpected Inheritance. <laughs> they didn't like it they didn't want to use that title so it's like well maybe i can if this becomes a series maybe i can make them let me use it later
0: <laughs> now you were you were talking about um titles that the the publisher uh wasn't a fan of and you were telling me earlier about uh, the sort of uh, you know in cozies most of the time the female amateur sleuth has a business of some sort and you'd gone mm-hmm. with some that the publisher didn't care for and you came up with a, a list and and they settled on antique stores so t- can you tell me a little bit about that again that was an interesting story about how you came to settle on an, an antique store for her business
1: well originally I, and i'll tell you the uh, the origin story was it was a costume shop because in new orleans what's better than a costume shop because a costume shop in new orleans is open all year yeah true People dress up in costume here all the time. All the time, give them an excuse. So I had wanted to do a costume shop because I thought that would be interesting, and I thought it would, I thought it would be interesting primarily because most costume shops in New Orleans have a their primary source of income isn't actually running costumes to you and me walking in off the street looking for a costume for a ball or something, but it's renting costumes to film and television company productions in New Orleans. Because they rent costumes from costume companies and from like the universities here, the theater departments at yeah. the universities here, they rent costumes. Uh, well, that would be interesting because then we could get into oh, a TV show or the filming of a movie yeah. or you know, this or that or the other. So I thought that would be interesting. Plus I could get into the Halloween. There was Halloween and Fat Tuesday and the Masquerade Balls and everything. I thought that was a really interesting way to take it. They did not. (laughs) The publisher did not think that was, they weren't keen on that idea. And so they wanted me to come up with another idea for business. Well, I picked the costume shop because there used to be one right over here in in my neighborhood, like a block or so away. And that's actually where I set, where I put the costume shop is where that costume shop used to be on St. Charles Avenue. So I just went, there's a Starbucks at the corner of um, Washington and Magazine Street in the Garden District. So I just went there, walked in, got a whatever their version of cappuccino is. So I got one and I just had my notebook with me and I went walking up Magazine Street from there and, and seeing what businesses were there. And then, oh, there's a bead shop, there's an interior decorator shop, there's an antique shop, there's a boutique, there's a this. And I just wrote them all down and I literally went home. And wrote them all, and wrote it all down, transcribed it into an email, and I sent it to them, and they picked an antique shop. I was like, great, I don't know anything about antiques, but neither does my character. That was how, <laughs> <laughs> that was how I decided to go for It's like, well, she doesn't know anything about antiques, and I don't know anything antiques. That's perfect. She can learn at the same time I do and I think there's even a, there's a point in the book where she says, she actually says that to somebody in the shop that she doesn't know anything about antiques. Um, she told her to just buy antiquing for dummies. And that was the good place to start. And that was literally the experience I had because I called a friend of mine who's really into mm-hmm. antique. And asked her, "So, what is the best way for me to learn about antiques? Because I'm writing this book where I have to about an antique shop. She's antiquing for dummies. Just get antiquing for dummies. <laughs> I put that in the book, and I actually do have a copy of Antiquing for Dummies, <laughs> and it's right here on my desk. And I kind of didn't really get into it as much as I should have in the in this book. But it's not so much that it's an ant. They are an antique shop where people can come in and buy stuff, but their primary market is, is estate sales, They handling estate sales and working with designer interior designers is what they, their primary market is. Okay. So they, and they also rent out furniture to movies and TV shows because that, That's one of the things I really want to get into. If the series ever, if the series does continue, I want to get into that. I also want to get into that whole weird. One of the things that's really interesting about New Orleans is that every neighborhood in New Orleans is mixed. There's not just a neighborhood where this is just rich people, this is just poor people. Every neighborhood has every socioeconomic level inside of it, and the, the further uptown you go. The less you know, it becomes much, much, much more not as not as mixed. The but there was always a working class neighborhood pocket in every neighborhood. There was always a rich pocket in every neighborhood. It just depended. Magazine Street was the was the dividing line between all the servants lived on the other the riverside of Magazine Street and the Irish Channel and all the the people they worked for lived on the other side of Magazine Street. We had a working class neighborhood right next to, in the same neighborhood, they needed a place to live <laughs> so they could get to work. So that's where they were all. So I, I, I also, I always find, I find that interesting about New Orleans, too, how it's so patchwork.
0: Readers can actually get a, a good taste of what New Orleans is like from your book, A Streetcar Named Murder. So where can they buy a copy?
1: um any of your finer booksellers you can also <laughs> it can be ordered online at any of the online distribution channels you can also be ordered at the crooked lane website it should be available at your library or at your local independent bookseller and if it is not you can certainly request it and they should get a copy for you hopefully please buy it i want to retire soon please buy my book <laughs> Please buy all of them. Buy multiple copies. They make great gifts.
0: Books <laughs> do make great gifts, and this one will be out in December, so just in time for for Christmas. Um, but you said it's Christmas this is only the start of the Christmas holiday. I mean, make a great carnival present. They, do they exchange presents at carnival?
1: Though I don't advise throwing them from floats. <laughs> yeah,
0: that would hurt if it hits someone. <laughs> that,
1: that would definitely hurt. I think those would need to be handed out, but special. The special throws are handed. They're not thrown.
0: <laughs> where, where, can, where can readers uh, connect with you to find out um, if there'll be another New Orleans mystery and to find out about your other series?
1: I do. I, I kind of use my blog as my website. So I have a blog. You don't have to re- read the whole thing every day if you don't want to. But it's um, Greg, G-R-E-G, writes, W-R-I-T-E-S, blog, B-L-O-G, dot com. And there's pages there where you can find information about my books and information about me as well. One of these days, I intend to teach myself how to build out a website because it's on WordPress, which is why I moved my blog to WordPress, so I can build it out into a website, use it as the basis for a website. I'm also on Facebook under my own name, Greg Heron, And you can also follow me on Twitter at Scotty Nola, S-C-O-T-T-Y-N-O-L-A. Well, uh,
0: I'm sure that after people read *A Streetcar Named Murder*, people will want to publish more in the series because it's it's very good cozy, um, and it's in New Orleans, which is a very cool city. Um, so readers can uh, learn about uh, one of the more interesting places on the planet and be entertained by a good mystery at the same time. So that's it's kind of a win-win.
1: I certainly hope so. I had a lot of fun with the book. I hope people enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Once I got out of my own head and I started having fun with it once once I stopped freaking out about what I was doing and just let it go. It was so much fun. I love writing about New Orleans and Valerie was so much fun to write about and I love her neighbor, Lorna. I love Lorna. I remember her name. I love (laughs) Lorna. She's hilarious. She just makes, she kind of, um, I kind of want to how how secondary characters take over it's like i I kind of like i kind of want to write about her (laughs) because she's interesting because i just the fact that she's a romance writer and that she's british and she's mixed mixed nationality italian english and that her husband is a pilot is an airline pilot i could have so much fun with that a
0: spinoff series
1: she could be like, she could be like, I could do like a Mrs. Polifax thing, <laughs> where she's flying for free everywhere on her husband's air, her husband's airline, and getting involved in their national intrigue or something like that. That would be way fun. <sighs> Ooh, and then I could justify a trip to Italy. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> Ooh, I could send her to Italy. Yeah, that would be fun. So that's this is how I get myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's I get in trouble. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. How do you like that? But well, well it's all—it's
0: all good trouble. <laughs> well, you—you've told us a lot about your book, and I'm sure it will intrigue people. Um, so they'll all be rushing out to uh, read it and get copies to gift, um, both as Christmas presents and as special handouts for the uh, next parade they go to. <laughs>
1: well, thank you, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> and thank
0: you, Greg, for chatting with me today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Greg Heron, writing as T.G. Heron, author of A Streetcar Named Murder, a New Orleans mystery, hopefully the first of a long series. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye.